Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Well, good morning. Oh, can I just tell you something really quick? So, as you guys know, if you've listened at all, if this is your first recording, don't worry about it. But I, I pre-record all this stuff because... It's just, it works out better for me if I'm going to tell a story to kind of do it. I don't do it, you know, multiple episodes a day, but I try to do it basically at least one a day because it kind of keeps me in the flow and it helps my my memory of the backstories and stuff that get involved. But this morning I come down, I'd use my laptop uh, to do other things yesterday and <laughs> I forgot to plug in my microphone. So I'm doing this recording and and intuitive, not intuitively, but like off to the side, I do watch my um, my EQ monitor, the light, the little lines that go up and down. And I've noticed that that they they weren't really as dramatic as they normally are. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just, you know, it's just, it's still mornings are not a bad time for me. But I thought maybe I'm just not as animated in, in you know in today's episode. Blah blah blah. And and somewhere in there, I. I glanced down enough that eventually I see the other end, the the plug-in and the USB cord for the microphone is sitting on the desk, and I'm like, oh no! So I basically wiped. I had to wipe out about um, no, not half. Good grief! It's like 15 minutes. <laughs> if you've listened to any of these, you know I wasn't even. I probably I'd barely started the story. <laughs> anyway. I called my producer right away. I was like, what do you think? And he was like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to make that sound uh, normal. Start over. And I was like, ah, I knew it. I knew it. Deep inside, I knew it when I saw it. But I thought maybe, you know, maybe he'd be like, oh, no problem. I can get a, I can do a quick download of this software and get a patch in there. And, and we'll EQ it in such a way nobody will ever know. Just, you know, do the rest of it on the microphone. And I'm like, yeah, I knew that was a long shot. I knew that was a long shot. But you know what? You guys keep passing my name around. You guys get me some more subscriptions. You guys help us out. And who knows? Maybe the book of Genesis, which if you're listening to this episode, which is I think episode 50, I probably am already recording the book of Genesis. So maybe by now in real time, I will have a, a better studio might still be in my basement, but it might be better. Because, you know, I could do something with this room. I probably will do something with this room. Could paint it. Ceiling's not bad, actually. Someone put in a pretty decent ceiling in this little section. A door. Actually, two doors to this room would be nice. Then you might not hear the furnace as much when it goes off, if you've ever heard it. Because I do know Brian's pretty good at get, catching that sound and making it go away. Anyway... On with the story. Enough about you, Bob. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. So, <laughs> it seems like I've already said this. Well, you have. You said it 15 minutes ago when you started. Okay. So, <laughs> Absalom, th things for Absalom are going pretty good. Absalom, ab, Absalom, ab, <laughs> I can't. Absalom, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Who 
Uh, between that and the and the names of of Zadok and Ahithophel's children, right? Uh, uh, Jonathan is fine. I can say Zadok's son, Jonathan, but Ahimaz, Ahimahaz, Ahimaaz. <laughs> I got I got to learn Hebrew. No, actually, I don't. I don't need to learn Hebrew. I need to listen to Hebrew. That's what I need to do, and maybe figure out how this would sound. One of you can send me a voice recording of these names. That would be awesome. Send it. Just email me a, a clip of you saying the names with the Hebrew accent. Not that I would, you know, I'm not doing the life of David anymore. But it might, it might. Well, I will do it if I'm, you know, if someone someone wants me to come speak at their school or graduation or church or retreat. Obviously, you can reach out to me, um, and probably many of you already have, but. Uh, so I will do whatever part of the story you want me to do, and I'll do whatever story you want me to do. Or you can just let me do whatever I want to do. It doesn't matter to me. All that to say, hopefully I've learned a little bit about the Hebrew accent by the time I start the book of Genesis. Uh, but only time will tell. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for the next epic narrative. <laughs> Oh yes. Oh um, yes. So everything with Absalom, abs- <laughs> you did it again, Bob. Everything with Absalom is going pretty well. He gets into the city, remember, with very little resistance. He gets into the palace with no resistance. Everything is lined up for him in the palace. Things are functioning in the palace. He does. He did. You know, takes the advice of Ahithophel, that he does something that is horrible uh, in the physical realm, in the political realm. And the in the visual realm, it uh, solidifies his, those who have committed to him because they all watch him rape uh, ten people, ten women. And of course, in the economic realm, and the political realm, and the diplomatic realm, he's made it very clear: I am in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge. I am not going to work things out with my dad. My dad is out. My dad is out, and I am. Uh, how did Ahithophel say it? He basically, I've become a stench in my father's, you know, nostrils. In other words, I've done something now that there's no way of reconciliation. Now, that's not true. David, David, we'll see later. I don't, I don't think we'll get to it today, but we'll see later. David, David is heartbroken and probably would have reconciled with with Absalom. But as far as Ahithophel was concerned, he wanted something done that would make Absalom, a stench to David, a non-reconcilable offense, because what did what David did to Ahithophel's granddaughter Bathsheba was an unreconcilable offense, because Ahithophel's been planning this takeover, looking for the pieces to come together since that day, and I believe that wholeheartedly, and I'll tell you why in today's episode, because I think it becomes very clear. So, uh, Absalom. Uh, take some more advice from Ahithophel, but this time he's starting to to pick pick up on the fact that he's now he's realized he's been a pawn. He's been a pawn who's been crowned king, and and I think as cold as ice, he takes over the the narrative. Ahithophel's been controlling the narrative, the frame of the the structure of the picture. He's been painting this picture. Everything's going according to plan. He's taken a pawn and crowned him king, and the king who, I mean the pawn, sorry, well either way, but the pawn is incredibly arrogant, he's very, very popular, 
he understands a lot about about um uh, running people and when he becomes king and he and he starts to sense wait a minute i'm just doing everything ahithophel says like he sees an opportunity i'm going to find out who's really loyal to me because it looks like the evidence seems to be here that ahithophel has been planning this for a while and ahithophel really is the one who wants to kill my father and he wants to make sure that my father's dead and he doesn't trust me to do it so he listens to one other voice everybody's in agreement with Ahithophel's plan he listens to one other voice who gives him the exact opposite plan basically centralize your power make yourself the leader of the of the nation call the all the all the tribes to send in troops make make you know put together a huge army then it doesn't matter Who's helping David? It doesn't matter where David is. You'll you'll be able to crush him. And in and in all ways, people will look to you as their as their new king. And that fed uh, Absalom's uh, ego. It fed his plan, and it gave him an opportunity to basically say, "All right, who's going to follow me?" And the men of Israel followed him. The elders of Israel went with it. So even in that moment. When and and you know, I just I picture this as a movie. I can't describe it as well as I can feel it. Like you can, you feel the shift in the room. Everybody's all for Ahithophel's plan, and then Hushi gives his plan, and it's and Absalom likes it, and and he basically calls for agreement from the elders, from all the leaders of Israel that have followed him in, and really had been lined up by Ahithophel for years. And he's saying, where's your loyalty? Are you going to counter the plan that I like and stick with Ahithophel's plan? Because I'm now king. And I think the elders that are standing there or sitting there, they're looking at each other sheepishly, and they're looking at Ahithophel, and Ahithophel knows this is this is dramatic. This is huge. And, and they basically all come out in favor of Hushi's plan. And then Hushi has to tell David what's going on. Because remember, Hushi's main goal was to buy David some time and figure out what's going to happen. So he sends word through a servant girl to... No, he sends word... Oh, read it. Okay, so... Oh, so Hushi tells the, the Zadok and the Abathar, who are probably in the palace. He tells them what the plan is. Uh, you know, Ahithophel said to do this. I told Absalom to do this. Absalom is going with my plan, but tell David he needs to go. Don't spend the night at the fords. Like, like if you can get this as soon as as soon as you get this message, David, start running. Pick up whatever luggage you have, which isn't much. And start running. Find somewhere else to go because because Absalom is coming for you. This isn't an option. Absalom's not going to just let you go into exile like you let him go into exile. He's coming after you. Even even in my plan, there's going to be war. And in essence, it's going to be civil war because it's the royal family against each other, and and both sides are going to have are going to have loyal loyal members. It's going to be ugly. Hushi knows this. So he's like, get on the road, get out of town. The priests tell a servant girl 
da 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 The servant girl goes out of the city where the two sons are hiding, <clears throat> Jonathan and Amahaz. They're staying at this little village called Inragal. That sounded French. No, not in France. So I have no idea what that sounds like in the Middle East. <laughs> but I'm sure it sounds awesome. She goes to inform them. Go tell David. You need to run. Now, the reason why they're staying outside of the city is because they can't be seen in the city. Why? Because they're familiar faces. They are faces of the sons of the high priest. They are easy, they are they are known by the people. They you know what? The sons of leaders, children of leaders, are often you know noted by others. They don't even have to even like they might not know the leader at all, but they're going to know the children. The children give access, easier access. They seem less um, intimidating to go talk to them in a, in a much minor way, right? As a pastor or as a camp director, my children sometimes would deliver messages to me from other people who were a little intimidated to bring their idea to me. Uh, now, that that's an issue between them and I. You know, if, if I hadn't created an environment where they felt comfortable bringing it to me, that was on me. But sometimes they just come from an environment where where leadership is unapproachable. So they didn't know how else to get me an idea. So they would they would talk to my kids. And sometimes my kids were fairly small. So they just innocently would bring me an idea. And, and I would know, it, you know, it clearly didn't come from them. It came from someone else. The other thing that often happens, right, is... is Poor, poor kids. Kids of leaders are often like plastered with expectations of people who think, well, well, you shouldn't act this way. You shouldn't say those things. You shouldn't wear those clothes. And especially in ministry, it, it's such a small bubble, right? It's a fishbowl. It can get very uh, uncomfortable for kids in that in that kind of fishbowl. And I'm sure that Jonathan and Amahaz knew what it was like to grow up in a fishbowl. They grew up surrounded by ministry. They grew up in a in a city that literally had a culture, like they were culturally shifting everybody to a world of forgiveness and love and worship and hope and peace. But because of that, you also get resistance. So any little trip up that they had, they would be pointed out for in the end. Remember, this is a nation that rejected Samuel because of the way his two sons had been raised. And Samuel, I think, as as if you you have to go way back to like the first couple of podcasts, but I think Samuel had a personal issue with rejection. He felt rejected, and I think that's why he didn't support Saul. But but it was because of his children that he was rejected. People were like, "We, you're fine. We can deal with you. We can't. We do not want to be overseen by your children. They are not good people. That's a horrible thing to say." So they're 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 in a in a in a nation where the children of leadership has been used to disqualify leadership. So if you don't like what David's doing, if you don't like the culture of worship that he's developing then you're looking to disqualify his leadership and the children of the high priests would have been one of the ways that you do it. So I say all that to, to just give you a full picture, like Jonathan and Ahimaaz, 
him Oz. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I know. I could have looked it up and I probably could have listened to it on Google and I'd know how to say it. I didn't. I'm sorry. You guys can send me a voicemail. Uh, oh, <laughs> Google on, uh, on thebobswitzer.com. Send me a voicemail on how to say it and I'll figure it out. If I ever come speak uh, at your church or retreat or something along that line and you want uh, you want this particular story, I will uh, let you know that I've gotten it and I will have learned it by then. Okay, okay, okay. On with the story. So the servant girl, now, now like the gates of the city would have been closed, but there's there was always uh, smaller doors and ways to get out of the city, and they were often called the eye of a needle. There were places that were basically designed for individuals to kind of get in and out. They were available for servants and messengers to come in and out. But if you were somebody who had a backpack or tried to get in with a with a camel, like that wasn't going to happen. If you were, you know, troops trying to get in, you would have to, you would, you would be so, uh, it's such a narrow passage that to try and get in with an army would be suicide because it would be, it'd be very easy for just one person to stand on the other side and just start stabbing each individual that tried to get through. It just, but they, but they did exist. And the servant girl knew that. And, oh, sorry. So I just kicked the table. Hope that didn't cause too much ruckus. In the uh, sound world. But the servant girl's there. She gets out. She's seen. Now, she's probably dressed in some sort of uniform that identifies her as a palace servant. And the kid who sees her knows that she's coming from the palace and evidently also knows that she's coming from the high priest. So I'm guessing... The direction she's coming from or where this guy was situated, he saw that she left. He saw that she went out of the out of the the doors. And he brings word to Absalom. And Absalom somehow figures out, and again, this could be through the guards he sent immediately to try and find him. Somehow they figure out that the sons of the high priests are not in the city. So they they correctly and immediately uh, surmise that the sons of the high priests are bringing a message to David. They need to be found, and the guards go after them. Now the young men, uh, the, the two sons, they run and they go to this house, uh, which is only a little bit, uh, not even a half, probably a half mile away, they, uh, in this little village. And and in that village, they go to this house that has their own uh, their own well. It's interesting that they have their own well. It probably it probably indicates that they they either had a house that was central to the village and and this was water for a lot of people, or they had a big enough compound that they had enough servants that they would have dug their own well so that they could not only um, you know take care of themselves, but it was like a workstation where there would be you know they would they would sift sift yeah sift the grain uh you know feed the cattle whatever whatever all day long and they had a hard cover over the top of it so these guys the the two guys show up and evidently they're friends of they know that they're friends of the family friends of david friends of the priest they're they're familiar they come in and they tell them they need a place to hide and they the woman 
puts them down in the well and the, the wife covers it and she spreads out uh, a covering over the top of it and she scatters grain over the top of it. So it, it clearly looks like a workstation. And because it's dark and there's shadows and there's, you know, there's uh, these, these guards are clearly kind of under the gun trying to find these two guys. They don't know where to look or how, you know, how, which direction they went on. They just kind of make the accusation. Where, where are Amahas and Jonathan? And the woman said, I guess they crossed the brook. Um, yeah, basically she just sends them on. I, she basically claims she doesn't know the brook of the brook wasn't that far away. Maybe they went there. Maybe they crossed over. So the guards leave. They just, they kind of look around the compound. They look around the brook. It's it, they, they're looking, they don't, they don't find them. And eventually they just head back to Jerusalem empty handed. Now, after they had gone, the two of them climb out of the well and they go to inform David at the fords. They said to him, set out across the river at once. Ahithophel has advised the king to come after you now. Hushi has advised the king to come after you later with a bigger army, massive army. Now, the king has taken Hushi's advice, which means you have some time, but there's a big army coming after you. And David knows when he's listening. He knows what Hushi did. He knows Hushi did not put together, is not trying to attack him with a big army. He knows that Hushi bought him time. And he's got to take advantage of every moment. He also knows because the guards were after these two, he knows that that uh, Absalom is aware that he's close. So he can't stay. So David and all the people that were with him set out across the Jordan. And by daybreak, no one was left on the other side of the river. Now that takes a lot of work. I mean, we can say that. Uh, you know, well, we crossed over the river. Yeah, well, we got, we got to wake up all the, all, uh, we got to wake up everybody. Right, they had just settled in. They were nervous. They're kind of jacked. Adrenaline's there. They finally, a lot of them finally fall asleep. And now they're waking up. And I'm sure they wake up startled. They wake up nervous. And they have to be quiet. Because David doesn't know how many other guards are out. Neither, neither do the two sons of the priest. They just know they were chased, that they hid in a well. They go and they, they do this, they, they do this right? They help people get, get their stuff together. They tie it on their backs. They tie it on their heads. They, they don't have many carts. They have a few donkeys. They still have food and wine that was brought to them by, uh, by that servant, Zibia. Is it Zibia? I think it is. Every, yeah, it's Zibia. Sorry. So Zibia had brought food and you know water. You got all the troops that had set up a probably a double perimeter to try and make sure that no one attacks them. But they also have to be ready to, to be the rear guard. So they send some troops across first to make sure that it, that side is open and clear. David crosses over. All the, all the servants cross over. The wives, concubines. Everybody's walking across the river. Some are slipping. Some are falling. Some are wetter than they want to be. Some... some you know, are tired. Some of the older ones need to be helped and carried. 
And eventually everybody gets across and it says, by the time the sun rises, no one was on on the Jerusalem side of the of the river. They'd all crossed over. And I'm guessing even though there's, you know, when you walk out of a river and into a river, there's lots of evidence, right? You can't you can't avoid the evidence of of especially walking out. Lots of water, everything turns to mud. It, it the water the trail of water gets further and further away from the river. Like as you, as more and more people come out of the water, it keeps getting dribbled further and further away. It's like coming out of the pool, you know, at a, at a YMCA. If you're the first one out of the pool, you, you step out. And by the time you get to the locker room, the, the floor is dry and everything's fine. But if you're the last person out of the, out of the pool, like the whole trail to the locker room, all the way to the lockers, is all wet because the whole team has walked in front of you and they've all dripped a little bit more and they've all carried the wet steps a little bit further. So there's lots of evidence of probably close to 800 people crossing the river and walking out of the river. So it's a, it's just it's just interesting that they get all this done in, during the night or in early mornings. The sun comes up and it's going to start drying that up right away. And in drying that up, it will help hide the fact that they crossed there. Evidence will start to disappear because wildlife and livestock will be brought to the fords because that's where it's easy to get water. The water is gentle. It flows slow. It's fairly shallow. And eventually it will all be dust and they will have gone. Now, this is an interesting part I, wanna, I want to... Uh, uh, and it, a interesting verse, which is for me key to the one of the storylines that we've been following. In verse 23 of chapter 17 of Second Samuel, it says, "And when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order, and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb." Now that's a that's a very dramatic uh, verse because it's a very dramatic end to his life. This is why I think for at least four or five years he had been actively working on the overthrow of David. I think he probably started to think about Absalom being his his pawn right after Absalom had killed Amnon. And had run off into exile with his uh, with his grandfather on his mother's side. I think that I think that in in his heart, I mean, he's a very wise man. I think in his in his mind and his heart, he said he he started to think if I can pave the way for Absalom, I think I think he'll do it because Absalom understands what this takes. He understands he has the character, or shall we say, lack thereof. To overthrow his father, he's got the pedigree, he's got the looks. I think I think this can work. I, I think he's been at this for years. I think his first thought was to kill David when he found out what he did to Bathsheba, but he also knew that was that was not a wise decision, and he waited. And when he saw what Absalom did to Amnon a few years later, he said, all right, I think I have my man, or at least I have somebody I can talk to about it. And I don't think he talked to Absalom for years, but I I have a feeling he advised Joab on that whole drama thing that he sent 
that Joab sent to David, the the lady that or the the yeah, the actress that he paid from that particular town to come in and act like an old lady that was mourning the death of her son, yada yada yada. He he followed along the storyline of Cain and Abel. We covered all that in the previous podcast, but I think Ahithophel had a voice in all of that. Because I don't think Joab, although he understands military strategy, he's a bit of a rebel, and I don't think he's one that's going to write a play for David to be convinced to bring uh, Absalom back from exile. Joab would have been more along the lines of getting into a, a fight with David, like challenging him to a fist fight to see who wins, and if I win, you bring Absalom back type of thing. Like he would have tried to beat the truth out of uh, into David, not not hired an actress and writ a script for her to obey. I, I just, I, it, it just, he might have, I'm not saying military minded men can't be creative. I'm not. It just seems odd given, given Joab's, uh, the picture that we have of Joab in scripture and in the, the writings that we have through history and archeology, span Joab was, was, a, uh, he was a, hard-nosed, aggressive, periodically rebellious uh, military leader. He, he was a warrior. Anyway, I think Ahithophel's been at this for a long time. You guys know that. I've probably made that point too often. All right. This is one of the main reasons why that whole dramatic scene where Absalom asks for Hushi's advice and Hushi gives the mm, pretty much the exact opposite advice. I mean, he still says go after David. So the core of the advice is, yes, go kill your father. He just, instead of making Ahithophel the center of the advice, he makes Absalom the center of advice and the center of the, of the, of the nation. That feeds Absalom's ego and... It gives him a legitimate second opinion to to check the loyalty of all the elders. And they all said yes. And Ahithophel, when he sees, and that word, right, he saw, that, that concept is a deep word. He looks out and he recognizes my advice is not being followed. In other words, I, I am, I, my gig is up. I do not have the role anymore that I thought I had. He is not a pawn. He is not going to do what he's told. He's an arrogant, rebellious son. And I didn't quite get him to do the final step to my plan. And that was to give me the opportunity to kill David. And because he won't take my advice and because it's not just it's not just that he saw that his advice wasn't taken. It was that he he was exposed for the advice he was giving. He could see that that Absalom understood that Ahithophel had been playing him, and his plan was now over. So he saddles his donkey and he goes off to his hometown, which again is not like a five minute ride. It takes a while to get there. It's miles away. And when he gets there, he puts his house in order. In other words, he, he sets up his family 
so that there's so that they'll be taken care of. And he's so bitter over the fact that David is still alive and he didn't get to kill him. He's so defeated by the fact that he had put together this plan for years and he wasn't able to bring it to conclusion. And not only was he not able to bring it, he's pretty convinced that David will never die because he does not believe that Absalom has the guts to kill his father. And Ahithophel knows David enough to know that David is David still has friends. And if David has a week, two weeks, a month, it's going to be mayhem to try and kill him. Ahithophel remembers being on the war, on the war on the road on the warpath on the road with David when when Saul would bring three thousand men up against him and they couldn't find him and they couldn't kill him. He knows that David is in his sweet spot when it comes to military strategies. A smaller group of men, very mobile. <clears throat> He knows that uh, Absalom is out of his element. And even if Absalom somehow wins the battles and captures his father, he's like, he just knows it's over. Absalom is not the leader that I that I keep telling him he is. Absalom does not have the type of character necessary to run this nation. This whole place is going down and I'm going down with it because I'm the one who put this whole thing in motion. He already lost the loyalty of all the elders that had followed him into Jerusalem. All of them that were fully behind his plan. But when Absalom gave him a second plan to choose from, they all chose to go with Absalom. That was their way of saying, we're going to stick with the king, the guy who actually has the power now, not the guy who was pulling the strings over the last several years. Ahithophel, you're great, but odds are we're not going to die if we disobey you, but there's a good chance Absalom's going to kill us if we disobey him. So we're going with him. So he puts his house in order, and he kills himself. He just hangs himself. He, he, I, 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 don't, I don't know if he's out in the barn. I don't know if he's in his bedroom. But it was his way, I, I think, of just, he was, bitterness just eats you alive on the inside. And for years, this guy has been bent on revenge. He wanted to embarrass David, which was the whole, you know, his motivation behind the concubines being raped on the rooftop. Like where I wouldn't be surprised if it's the rooftop that David saw Bathsheba from. Like that would have been something that he would have done just to make sure David knows. I think he wanted to communicate to David this whole time. Like, David, this is about Bathsheba. This is about what you did to my family. I think that's why he wanted to be the one to kill David. He wanted to take those 12,000 troops. That's why he's had them all set up in advance. It's like, go. let me go get him tonight, right now. 
And then, like, how in the world are you going to get 12,000 troops in a matter of hours? Oh, I've already got them. I've already got them. They are following me. That's a huge, that's a huge, uh, you know, risk that he took. And Absalom knew exactly what Ahithophel was saying. He's saying, this is all about me killing your father. This is not about you becoming king of the, of the nation. He really believed that in revenge he would find fulfillment, which is the one of the biggest lies of offense. One of the biggest lies of being offended is that you really believe that if you get revenge, if you can embarrass them, if you can if you can humiliate them the way that you felt humiliated or embarrassed or frustrated, then then you know payback, karma. You'll see. You'll get your comeuppance. <laughs> That's from a movie, right? Can't remember what movie that was. That was funny, though. Yeah. He hangs himself. He died and was buried in his father's tomb. That usually happens within 24 hours uh, in the culture of the, in the Hebrew culture. This happened, you know, by sunset, he was, he was buried. It was very unceremonial. This was a man who, who counseled kings. This is a man who entertained emissaries, ambassadors, dignitaries, royalty from all over the world. They sought his advice just like David would. Because David raved about the wisdom of Ahithophel. It was like speaking to an oracle of God. Everyone listened to him. His children learned and would listen to Ahithophel. He had influence and probably taught in the schools that the royal families and, and government officials' families would have gone to. He had influenced nations. And he died alone and was buried. Uns no ceremony, no celebration, no, no speeches about, about his amazing life and where he came from. No recognition that David, you know, that David found him in the wilderness. Remember, the, who were the people that came to David when he was in the in the cave? The destitute, the those that were indebted, those that were on a on a, you know, the wanted list had death sentences from uh, from the king. Somehow Ahithophel's life had turned crazy upside down, and he ended up in a cave with a shepherd boy who had been appointed a general, who had won multiple victories, who had defeated a giant on his own. He ends up in the, in the same cave with this guy, and this young man recognizes that Ahithophel is filled with wisdom from God, not just a smart guy with experience. He had a way of hearing the voice of God that was that was recognizable to David, and David kept this man close. This is a really sad end to the life of Ahithophel. But that's what happens when offense stays in you, and it turns to bitterness. And in some way, whatever you try to accomplish, does it, it, will, it will literally never satisfy you. Even if Ahithophel had come to a place where he got a, you know, his one-on-one -on -one moment with the king and some dramatic cave scene in the wilderness, and he's got the sword out, and David's curled up in a corner, and he's 
or backed against the corner, not curled up, but backed up against the corner. There's nowhere for him to go. And Ahithophel's able to, you know, spew out all the hurt and pain and anguish that he had on David for, for just putting in jeopardy everything that they had worked so hard to, to produce in this country. The, the, I mean, the amount of, of internal, uh, relational and leadership, uh, wisdom that it took to shift the culture of a nation like Ahithophel felt all that and David put it all in jeopardy he almost threw it all away for the for the sake of some somebody else's wife you didn't even need to have sex with somebody like you could have had sex with anybody that night do you, you have a palace in essence filled with them and what are you doing you throw it all away for that Oh, Ahithophel was deeply hurt and deeply wounded by David's lack of restraint that night. And remember, David made a ton of choices that night. It wasn't just he fell in love and he couldn't help himself. He made, I think we listed at least 15 conscious choices to bring Bathsheba to his bedroom. All of that is legitimate. All of that is in Ahithophel for years. All of that has been burning within him. And when he doesn't have the opportunity to kill David, he just goes and kills himself. And I personally believe that even if Ahithophel had that moment and he was able to spit all that out at David and he was able to kill David, I think he still would have ended up going home and killing himself because it is never satisfying. Bitterness, bitterness is never satisfied. That's the essence of sin. Sin is never satisfied. That's why the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, because death is the only way out of that cycle if you don't walk, if you don't repent, if you don't find a new way to look at things, if you don't walk into the love of God and let him heal that pain. If you don't relationally restore what needs to be restored so that you're whole again. You're never going to be satisfied. You become a constant victim of circumstances. You have to control everything so that you're never hurt again. And that's what Ahithophel did. He controlled everything until it all fell out of his control. And he went home, put his house in order, and killed himself. And he was buried with probably just his wife and children around. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's such a sad ending. A bitterness that doesn't ever end well. Ever. I, uh, I, I got, there's more I was going to do. I, I really, um, well, let, let me just do this. Let me just do this. We'll finish up this chapter just, just because, uh, it's been 40 something minutes already, but so David goes to Menahenim, <laughs> and Absalom crossed the Jordan with the men of all the men of Israel. So here is again, this is a verse that involves a lot of time, right? So David goes to this little village, uh, and um, David heads to Menahem. Yeah, so he sets up his family there, right? It's it's a it's a it's a walled village, it's a walled city, it's a place that has some sense of security. And it says that Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. 
So then we kind of get a breakdown of what's happening after that. So Absalom appointed Amasa, Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now it goes on to describe in the next couple of verses, or, or the rest of that verse, it goes on to describe his background. Basically, Amasa or Amasa is the cousin of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. So they, when it says that, it does again, this doesn't happen overnight. He's calling troops from one end of the country to the other. So he's got to give weeks for the men of these villages to be recruited, gathered, assembled, marched all the way down and then across the river, Jordan to Gilead. He's got to prepare this this massive army that Hushi had told them to get. So we've got weeks of time. And he puts in charge the cousin of Joab, another basically, right? So Joab's with David. And now there's a family member who's overseeing it. So this is this is a royal civil war. And it's not by accident. It's, it's by design. Absalom is the son of David. He's rebelling against his father. The cousin of Joab is put in charge of Absalom's army. There's another, you know, in essence, rebellious family member, somebody who's going to oversee the, re- the, the rebellion. David comes to Mannheim, and it starts to go through a list of people who start showing up and start bringing supplies, bedding, bowls, cookware, articles of pottery, storage areas, uh, wheat, barley, flour, grain, beans, lentil, honey, curd, sheep, cheese, goats, cow's milk, all of this are bringing, they're bringing this in for for David and his people to eat. They said, you know, people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. We're talking uh, over the next few weeks, thousands also show up at the city and supplies start streaming in, not only from the, the nation of Israel, but from the surrounding nations who want to show their support of David. Remember, uh, economically, everybody's doing great with David in charge. Diplomatically, everybody's doing great with David in charge. This is a time of uncertainty. There's been a coup, but David's not dead. David's alive. David has Joab, his main general, and, and two of his mighty men. David's won these kind of battles before. David's David is somebody you could put your money on. Absalom is good looking. Absalom has a ton of people on his side, but Absalom has no experience. Absalom's not a general. And Absalom's one of his number one counselors is now dead. So people start to wonder who's gonna who's gonna win this? Absalom's trying to make such a show that it becomes obvious, like I am so good and so big and so powerful, there's no way anybody beats me. But there's, there's plenty of supplies of men and, and uh, uh, what do I want to say, not supplies, um, provision. Men and provisions are still pouring into David. And David knows all this. And he keeps track of all of this. And his, and his numbers grow. And I just, I, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. There's no way I finish this. I, I don't want to go over an hour. I'll go over an hour if I go into the battle. But we'll hit the battle tomorrow. Uh, not tomorrow. I'll, 
Well, maybe I'll hit it tomorrow. We'll we'll hit the battle next week on the epic narrative. Until then, guys, don't don't let bitterness eat you away. Don't let revenge become your mantra. Don't let your life become that of a victim where you have to control everything so that you don't get hurt again. Really, the love of God can overcome that. It can bring such healing into your life. I, I wonder sometimes, like, what... I, well, not sometimes. I love using my imagination. Like, what would have happened if Ahithophel had taken a moment, and he had plenty of them with David, if he'd taken a moment and said, Dave, I, we need to talk, bro. Like, I, I know you married my, my granddaughter, and I know you get, you know, she, she gave birth to this beautiful boy named Solomon. But I got to tell you, I'm still really upset by what you did. I don't think what you did is right. I, I don't. And I know you repented before God, but there's something like we, we need to get things right. We need to talk this out. I, 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 there's just so many ways this could have gone right. And lives would have been spared. Not just the life of, of his son, but thousands of men that are about to go into battle. Anyway, don't let bitterness ride. Don't let revenge stay. It's never satisfying. And it always ends up with somebody or something dying. All right. Till next week. I'll see you on the Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.